Hello, I'm Harriet Smith and welcome back to the Dietitian Cafe where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. In this big dietetic debate, we're going to be looking at the question, does one size fit all when it comes to the non-diet approach? I'm delighted to be joined by registered dietitian Catherine Kimber, better known as Kat, and registered nutritionist Isabella Robinson, better known as Isa, both of whom are specialists in intuitive eating. Isa is a registered associate nutritionist, a nutritional therapist, and a certified intuitive eating counsellor. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Edinburgh and went on to do her master's in eating disorders and clinical nutrition at UCL. Isa has undertaken training in body image, intuitive eating and nutritional psychiatry, and her recent research on the impacts of eating disorders on caregivers was published in the European Eating Disorders Review in September 2020. Isa is an ambassador for the charity BEAT and also partners with schools. She works in private practice and her approach very much focuses on evidence-based nutritional science with psychological modalities to help individuals to feel empowered around food. Kat Kimber is a registered dietitian and she's the founder of Nude Nutrition on social media. She's on a mission to help people to find food happiness. Catherine offers one-to-one coaching. She runs a community and group courses to help people to break out of a negative relationship with food. Kat has completed an extensive amount of formal education and training with a degree in nutrition and dietetics from King's College London and a distinction in her master's in clinical research. She also has an NHS background, a diploma in neurolinguistic programming, and is a certified intuitive eating counsellor. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing what exactly is intuitive eating and who's it aimed at. We're going to chat to Isa and Kat all about the evidence behind intuitive eating, whether weight loss can go hand in hand with the intuitive eating, and where you can go to learn more about this important topic. I hope that you find this episode really interesting. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome you both to the Dietitian Cafe. Hello, thank you for having us. <laughs> exciting to be doing this. Yeah. Great. So I'd like to dive in with um, quite a basic question to begin with, but I think it will help to really set the scene for this discussion. So, um, Kat, let's come to you first. Could you begin by explaining to us what is intuitive eating? Yeah, um, when you first said there, it's quite a a basic question. I actually think it's not. I think it's actually something that's quite difficult for people to really grasp and understand. But intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework that um, is designed to help people break out of a negative relationship with food. And it really it's a compassionate framework that treats all bodies with dignity and, and respect and intuitive eating it's an approach that is very much aligned with health at every size and there are a number of non-diet approaches so there's intuitive eating there's body trust there's well now there there are different approaches but these new approaches typically emphasize optimizing uh, an individual's physical and psychological health and allowing their weight to naturally settle at a place that's healthy for them because what we're now learning is not only are those traditional approaches to um, such as weight loss, ineffective for a lot of people, but but the dieting and restriction can also cause a lot of physical and emotional distress. So it's really an approach that takes the focus off of weight loss and onto health gain. Brilliant, and is is intuitive eating a new concept or has it been around for a long time and, and where has it been born out of, do you think? 
Yeah, it actually has been around for, for quite a while. And the first uh, edition of Intuitive Eating was uh, published in about 1994. And we're currently on the, the fourth edition of it now. And it's gone through um, kind of, it's been revamped by the two co-authors, um, Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch. And something that I really love about their work is that they um, kind of really take accountability for um, some of the perhaps shortcomings in the earlier um, editions. And they're really seeking to be open and transparent about how they can update things to be um, more inclusive, to think about talking about issues such as weight stigma or racism or other systems of oppression and how they might intersect with kind of this health gain that, that Kat is talking about. So it has been around for actually um, a little while, but it's ever changing and ever updating. And it's centered around the sort of 10 principles, uh, really. And I think it's um, really important to think about that, that intuitive eating has these sort of 10 principles, which all come back to self-care, but that it's really sort of not this sense of something you can just pick up like, oh, I'm eating intuitively today. It's it's not just that sense of following your intuition. That is a huge part of it. But it's also this dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion and thought. And so it kind of brings in these different aspects of uh, mind and body and self-care to really think about how we can help somebody improve their health. I really like how it comes at um, health eating from more of a holistic perspective. And you touched upon there the 10 different principles of intuitive eating. Would the two of you be able to just give us a very brief overview of exactly what those principles are? Yeah. Should we do one each? Go for it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'll tick them off. Okay, so principle number one is about ditching the diet mentality. So this is about recognizing how. Um, dieting can quite often or dieting restriction by dieting i mean anything that we do in order to pursue weight loss in any form whether it be sort of calorie counting or something more fatty like a juice cleanse it's recognizing how that can contribute towards eating problems um so it's understanding the science behind diets why they don't work we might look at someone's kind of history of um, dieting and, and what they've done, what they've tried, where it's got them. And so this step is really about trying to pin the pursuit of weight loss aside so that we can really make space to focus more on intuitive eating. Uh, I think one thing that's really important to iterate here is these steps do not go in order. So whilst we might be talking about them in order right now, this uh, these are things that we kind of move through in a really iterative process and we go back and forth between the principles so I totally appreciate that it's not going to be as easy as right step one ditch the diets off we go move on that's just not how it works but that's principle number one great yeah, thank absolutely. you absolutely and and also sorry I jumped in there um also to say that it also completely depends on where the client's at and what they really want to work on as well in terms of the order that we might go in um, but the second one is sort of honor your hunger so it's really thinking about once we've kind of removed or we've started to eat away at some of that diet mentality we have space to sort of reconnect to the body to think about what hunger feels like in the body um, in terms of physical sensations what that might mean in terms of a gentle hunger versus extreme hunger so often diet culture sort of 
pathologizes hunger and kind of makes us wait and wait and wait until we're completely ravenous. And I think it's also really important to say for this principle that intuitive eating is not the hunger and fullness diet, that within this principle, we really think about physical hunger, but also practical hunger. You know, sometimes we might not be hungry, but we might have a meeting that runs over lunch or something like that. So um, taking care of ourselves through eating food and also things like taste hunger as well, you know, just eating things because they're really delicious and pleasurable and knowing that we have all of those options available to us. So it's really helping somebody reconnect with their body a lot of the time as well. And we talk about interoceptive awareness a lot of the time in intuitive eating, which is this sort of awareness of physical sensations that arise in the body and then responding to them in sort of a timely manner, which again comes back to sort of care and compassion. That's number two. Principle number three is making peace with food. And so just drawing upon what Issa said there with this interoceptive awareness, which is the ability to notice and respond to our natural signals in our body and honor what our body's after, there are, there are disruptors to that. So making peace with food, making peace with food is about um, actually giving ourselves permission to eat all, all foods, which can sound really, really scary. But the reality is for a lot of people trying to exclude or eliminate foods doesn't actually work either. And for some people that can fuel that kind of binge restrict cycle of cutting foods out, feeling crazy around it, cutting it out, feeling crazy around it. So in this step, we do a lot of myth busting, looking at some of those common fear foods, the usual culprits, sugar, additives, processed foods, gluten, carbs. Um, understand where those fears are coming from, what the actual science is behind them, and really helping an individual um, make, make peace with them and offering them guidance on how to approach these previously perhaps restricted foods, either they're either physically restricted or emotionally, that person feels bad for eating them, which is another form of restriction. So approaching them with real curiosity and in a way that feels safe for that person. So yeah, we, we move at um, different paces depending on what, what's going on with that individual. Yeah. Uh, principle four is challenge the food police. So I like to think about this as that voice in your head which tells you you can eat this or you can't eat that or you're good for eating this or you're bad for eating that. And it's really kind of having space to explore what that inner dialogue sounds like, uh, perhaps to tease out sort of different parts as well. So quite often uh, with clients, we might think about that really kind of nasty critical part or that punitive part that comes up. Or we might think about strengthening um, that more compassionate part of themselves, or uh, maybe we might think about building that in if somebody doesn't have much of that. And it's really about sort of having a, a curiosity of, of how that can play out and challenging that nasty voice. Again, it might have a lot of psychoeducation in there, being able to come back with some science or, or some, some words of compassion. So that's that one. Okay, um, principle number five we're halfway there don't worry <laughs> ladies we <laughs> we can fast track it if you like <laughs> i'll be quick on this one respecting fullness so um it's about kind of understanding what fullness feels in the body and getting to that point of eating to the point of comfortable fullness other than rather than you know when we're stuck in that diet mentality we can really swing from being overly hungry through restriction being all, all the way to being overly stuffed so actually quite often when we kind of deal with 
honoring hunger, making peace with food, challenging the food police. Fullness is something that can kind of naturally, um, I notice, tend to fall into place easier um, than some of the other principles. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the next ones is just discovering the satisfaction factor. So just reclaiming the pleasures of eating, really. Um, bringing back all the um, joyous elements of food um, that maybe have been cut out, like dressings or the dessert. Um, and I really love the research, you know, on this. I think it's Japan that's the only country in the world that has um, sort of pleasure included in its healthy eating guidelines. So really just thinking about pleasure and joy in eating. And also to say that not every meal is going to be this sort of perfect, amazing, exactly what you want to eat. So it's it's always coming back to that self-care and there's always so much nuance, I think, within every principle. Yeah. The next principle is honouring your feelings without using food. So around emotional eating, which we know is a perfectly natural and normal act of self-care as well. Um, and it's not something that should fill people with guilt. Um, quite often when people move through uh, honouring their hunger, challenging the food police, making peace with food, em emotional eating can sometimes dissipate. But if emotional eating is still there and food is still the only or main coping mechanism, then what we can do is work together to find ways of helping that individual to recognise what's coming up, what's contributing to that, um, what other emotions are coming up um, that have been, where food is being used to soothe that on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, you know, we might work together as well to kind of look at other ways in which um, areas in an individual's life that are impacting the, that person's ability to sort of tune into those signals, so sleep, stress, boundaries. And, and, it, and it might be the case that if someone's heavily re reliant on food and, and emotionally there's a lot going on it might be that we then refer out and recommend some sort of therapy brilliant yeah. so we're, we're um, almost at the end now i think <laughs> three more yeah the next one is respect your body um and so this is really the principle that's focused on sort of body image work and this sense of, of body respect um this idea that we might not completely love our bodies but can we at least kind of respect them can we meet their most basic needs and treat them with with dignity and, and kindness and I think it's really important within this chapter to be thinking about how intuitive eating how a process might play out for different individuals and I think Evelyn Tribbley talks really well on this and how if somebody is in um, a smaller body and they have that body privilege then they can go through this process and, and go out into the world and it's all hunky-dory and actually for somebody that might be in a larger body that might face uh, weight stigma or somebody that may um, kind of be within other systems of oppression this is a, a really tough principle and so it's about really holding that space for the client often really helpful so working with a therapist um, as well throughout this this process so Can that's I, just... I would say that's a big principle yeah. Can I just ask you to clarify for any of our listeners who are not particularly familiar with what body privilege actually means, can you just expand on that in a, in a bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. So it's also sometimes referred to as thin privilege. And it's just this real, real kind of understanding that 
um, for individuals in a, in a smaller body, they can go out into the world, they might be able to sit in an airplane seat, they might be able to go to the doctor's office and receive adequate care. Let's say they went in with a knee pain, they could be treated for a knee pain. And so it's this sense that we don't face the same levels of, of oppression in, in our everyday life. Um, for individuals who might be in larger bodies, we know there's a lot of weight stigma that they face on, on a daily basis. And that can be internalized weight stigma, it can be weight stigma in the medical model, it can be um, in spaces that we might otherwise not even consider as individuals operating in smaller bodies. For example, um, being able to go to the bathroom in a restaurant or because the space is too small and cramped or feeling comfortable sitting on a train or uh, having doctors say, oh, well, have you just tried this latest weight loss diet? So it really starts to, to consider uh, these systems of oppression and how it means that we're all going to be going through this process differently. Kat, I don't know if there's anything you would add to that. No, I think you've explained that really well. Um, and I think it is a, it's a huge topic, but I'm more than happy to talk more about um, the whole weight stigma piece in healthcare. Um, and yeah, I know that there's some more questions that you have had later yeah. on that was probably going to touch on that a lot more. So uh, definitely, we'll come back to that perhaps when we talk a bit more about public health guidance later on. Um, so I think we might have a couple more principles left. I don't know if one of you wants to just run through them quickly. Principle nine, it's moving our body to feel, feel the difference. So um, this is about helping people to find more joyful movement and bringing that into their life for the fun, the fitness, the, the doing it with friends rather than using it as a way to sort of punish your body and use it as a vice to burn off food and burn off the calories that you ate yesterday or what you're going to eat later. Um, so it's finding that movement that makes you feel good. Um, again, just to add to Issa's point there of, what we have to recognize here is, is privileges in that not everyone can have joyful movement when they feel hugely stigmatized against because of their size, classes aren't available for them, certain brands don't go above a size 16. And so what we, we really need to do is better in our kind of society to enable all people to be able to find more joyful movement. Um, Issa, do you wanna do principle number 10? Very quick one. Last one is on your health with gentle nutrition. It really looks at how we can blend, um, you know, nutritional science and information with an individual's uh, taste preferences and hold sort of honoring our health and honoring our taste buds. So um, whether it's health, there is joy and vice versa. And I think again, like privilege comes in so much, you know, having access to fresh fruit and vegetables, um, having time to be doing food prep, um, so many different things. I think it's in the um, kind of food strategy. I think it's such a large proportion of so many individuals income that would have to be spent on food. It's something like 98% of their entire income would have to be spent on food to meet the eat well plates guidelines which is just you know crazy and so I think it's really important to be kind of going back again even to the social determinants of health um, as well as other psychological factors or things which mean that you know it's not going to be the same for everyone we're not all in the in the same starting point but hopefully also and I know this is really important to Elise and Evelyn they are trying to make sure that intuitive eating is accessible to everyone and I know they're doing a lot of work on food insecurity and things um, but it's a work in progress. 
just on that note, is it accessible to everyone? Um, can you explain about how you can apply an intuitive eating approach to different patient groups? For example, somebody with a chronic health condition, someone with a disability. Um, is, it, is it suitable for all patient groups? Kat, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so there's definitely been some, there's definitely, intuitive eating definitely has a place in some, place, in some of those places, in lots of those places, in fact, in fact, but um, the kind of health that every size model has been criticised in, in a little bit, in that um, there's, a, there's a dietitian called Jessica Wilson, who is in America, and she talks quite a lot about this, in the fact that health at every size really just talks about health and size together and doesn't kind of factor in um, other sort of intersections and other ways in which um, you know people have faced different sort, sort of forms of oppression um, so I think what we need to do is work with individuals based on their own experiences and with what kind of feels right for them so some people have health conditions for example that mean they will never have perfect health markers um, and so working towards health at every size or, or, or that as a as a goal for them is not going to be helpful and um, so we really need to look at that individual and I, I think that intuitive eating is really helpful and it's a framework to take people away from dieting it gives them something to kind of hold on to and and work with and I see it as almost like a stepping stone towards right not like normal eating and but with people with different health conditions what we might do say for example they had um uh diabetes or polycystic ovary syndrome what we might do is um bring in some of those gentle nutrition principles if appropriate a little bit earlier on with a real focus on what can be added into the diet as, as opposed to what can be removed we might also look at kind of the wider picture here and those wider social determinants of health to say right actually yes nutrition is important but we need to look at the bigger picture here and if it means that through healing your relationship with food in the short term, your eating's not, not going to be, you know, quote, perfect, we're doing this for the kind of long-term gains. So we want to try and make it as easy as possible for someone. We might look at what can be added in with food, but we might also look at some of the lower hanging fruit, some of the easiest stuff to work with. So medications, supplements, um, getting the right support from the doctor, getting the physio that that person needs, all of those kind of slightly easier things that are going to enable that individual to work towards what it is that they would like to achieve um, as opposed to kind of uh, maybe working through principle one, two, three, four, five. Um, so I think it it is appropriate. I'm thinking of those clients that I would, I would work with, for example, in um, the hemodialysis unit at the Royal London there's some people that I just think, gosh, would intuitive eating really apply to them? And I think in some circumstances, when someone's very sick, there are certain foods that they have to avoid because if they eat potatoes or bananas and too many of them, they, they might die. So we have to bring in that gentle nutrition component to sort of educate. Um, but I think it's the way in which it can be delivered is, is how I would, you know, I probably work quite differently with an individual now with the, with the knowledge that I have on this work and how I would infiltrate that into, um, you know, my NHS work, for example, with very sick patients. Yeah, I'll come back to that topic in a moment. I'd like to hear more about how that can sort of be applied to an NHS setting. Just before I do that, I wanted to ask um, Isa, 
the journey of intuitive eating, we've got the 10 principles that you've talked through in quite a bit of depth. Um, how long does it tend to take for you to work with a client to promote this, this approach to intuitive eating? Is it, presumably it's not something you can do in a one-off consultation. So how does, how does that work with your patients? Yeah, um, definitely. It's, it's almost a sense of, of how long is a piece of string in, in a way. And I really just wanted to echo what, what Kat said, because I think it's so important, this sense of it's really this sort of personalized approach, which is helping somebody kind of use the principles they would like to use to get to where they would like to go. Um, and so it's not this thing that you kind of complete the last principle and you get a certificate and you've graduated and from this moment always, you're an intuitive eater. It's this sense of like an ongoing dynamic process almost of always connecting to the body and, and discovering things about yourself. And obviously as humans in our lives, we go through different life stages and maybe we become unwell. And so we might have to pull more from one principle compared to another. So I think, you know, it's, it's really this sense of something that's ongoing and the way that I might pace it with a client again, completely depends on their own sort of preferences and needs. And so we might meet kind of weekly initially to start laying some of the groundwork and, doing some some elements of things and then we might bring it down to something like monthly and I might work with someone for any varied period of time from maybe a number of months to um, over a year depending on what what they would like and what they keep bringing bringing back you know it's not like we do hunger and then hunger's completely perfect and done it might be that six months later maybe we revisit it if that's what they want to bring. Um, so I wouldn't say there's any sort of fixed amount of time. And it's really about how the principles fit into the context of someone else's experience in life, rather than making somebody fit these neat principles. Sure, I mean, that's a really helpful explanation that you've given. And similarly, if there's a patient that can't afford to come and see a private nutritionist or a dietitian because my understanding is that it's not widely available on the NHS at the moment, I may be wrong. Um, but if, if somebody's not able to see a private consultant, is intuitive eating something they can implement in their day-to-day -day life, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, there's so many more resources coming out all of the time, and especially the, the book, the fourth edition of the book, and there's also a workbook, um, which again was, was by Elise and Evelyn. And actually, in many of the uh, research, that, and um, particularly the intervention trials they've done, they've actually used the workbook, and they have actually shown that that in and of itself can be a really effective tool at, at helping somebody work towards intuitive eating and seeing some of the benefits that we associate with it. For example, there's things like improved um, physical and psychological well-being, body image, quality of life, all those sorts of things I, I know we might come to more. So absolutely, there are resources out there. Laura Thomas um, is another a great person to be following along with in the, in the UK. She offers uh, training courses for professionals, and also um, courses that an individual can do that's more of a low cost option. So yeah, I would absolutely say if somebody is, is wanting to, to start on the journey that those books and, and certainly having a bit of a look online would be a good place to start. And coming to you, Kat, um, how can intuitive eating be embedded more in NHS dietetic practice? Obviously, Isis highlighted some really great resources that perhaps dietitians could direct their patients to, but do you think that there's enough being done at the moment to embed this approach into traditional NHS dietetics? Um, that's a really good question. And 
I personally didn't learn about this approach at King's when I was studying. I remember we got taught that we, we know people can lose weight, but we don't know how people can lose weight and keep it off. And we just need to help them find a way for that individual. And so thread throughout my practice in the NHS, I worked in a private weight loss clinic as well for some time. I remember there would be people that would come back time and time again with their food diary to the one-to-one sessions. Um, they'd come to the kind of group sessions and it would be really frustrating for both them and for us. And I remember, you know, we'd, we'd be taught, you know, maybe they're not reporting on their food diary well, maybe they're under-reporting. And I think as dietitians, what we need to be really aware of is that there are people that are out there that these traditional approaches just aren't really effective for. And I think it's really important for us to have an awareness and knowledge of the fact that one of the strongest predictors of weight gain is dieting. Um, and, and for some people, in fact, for a lot of people, these approaches can be quite ineffective and cause harm. Um, but we, I think what we need to do is, is work with that individual to give them a choice. And there are some people where the pursuit of weight loss is gonna be you know, the right thing for them. That's what they want. That's what they've come for. Uh, maybe they've never dieted before. Maybe they've got a really healthy relationship with food and they just need some support for that. But what we need to look out for is these groups of people that are really struggling. Um, and I think where we need to work better is to, first of all, not cause harm and become more educated around weight stigma, our own weight biases in the healthcare setting and how much they can have a really huge negative impact um, on an individual. We know that weight-based discrimination is independently associated with inflammatory markers or raised inflammatory markers, increased blood pressure, blood glucose levels, and actually the biggest, uh, the most common place for weight-based discrimination to take place is in the healthcare setting. Um, so we need to do, we need to do better there. Um, we also know that it results in people not attending clinics, so DNAs, um, people uh, not engaging in physical activity, um, less healthy eating, um, and just kind of substandard care. So I think what we need is more education, and there are some free resources out there to educate um, clinicians. Um, and, and just have that awareness and if we can to educate ourselves on these non-diet approaches and start to infiltrate them into our practice as Issa said that there are some great resources from the London Centre of Intuitive Eating Laura Thomas and her team there they do do courses and I know NHS professionals have come along there's the UK non-diet professionals Facebook group the mindful dietitian Facebook group and there are lots of NHS dietitians and they're really keen to understand how to infiltrate this into practice so what it might be worth doing is kind of is going to those places and, and actually engaging with other people that are in the same sort of setting as you to see how you can work together to do better for people in practice. Um, because it is difficult. I appreciate we only have 15 minutes with a client that we might see once every three months. Um, but we can influence change um, and we can, you know, make that client come back again or that patient come back again to that session and feel like they've been heard and cared for and, and not kind of, um, you know, just pushed away because they've, or, you know, made to feel bad because they've not hit that number on the scale. Um, so, 
Yeah. It's fascinating to hear. And, and clearly you both have so much knowledge and training in this area. Um, and in dietetics and nutrition, I think it's such an evidence-based profession. And sometimes change can take a little bit of time in our profession because people are always looking for that evidence before they, they move to a new approach. So um, Isa, do you feel that the is the evidence-based there for intuitive eating? And I guess that might... Um, uh, be interesting for our listeners who don't know much about this topic and are thinking at the moment well how much evidence is there behind intuitive eating so can you can you talk to us a bit more about that perhaps yeah absolutely and I think uh, currently there's over 160 studies um, looking at intuitive eating in various different uh, population groups and settings um, we've got studies um, in individuals with diabetes we've got studies on um, individuals experiencing eating disorders we've got adolescents um, there is kind of more and more coming out which is, is super exciting and just kind of generally we tend to see um, improved quality of life um, enhanced psychological well-being, improved um, body satisfaction and reduced body dissatisfaction, um, reduced or lower disordered eating or eating disorders. Um, we actually tend to see, although this is one that we want to be really mindful about, that individuals who practice intuitive eating tend to have a, a lower BMI, um, not lower in terms of moving into an underweight category, but they tend to be more stable in terms of, of their weight. And one of the things that we're always trying to do in non-diet approaches is move away from that. So it's one that I'm not necessarily that keen to always bring up, but I think it is interesting, again, just to look at how, like um, Kat said, we know that dieting can result in weight loss uh, and weight gain over time. And so I think that that's where it might come in. That's where I'm interested in it, that actually when we're eating in a way that's focused on kind of pleasure and our hunger and fullness signals and self-care, that do we set, tend to see a lot less weight cycling, which we know can put an individual at increased risk of cardiovascular disease and other um, chronic illnesses. So I think that's uh, really interesting to, to have a look at. Uh, one of the areas that I'm really interested in is intuitive eating um, to help with the treatment of eating disorders. And I think the research there is particularly interesting how it can really, you know, obviously not the beginning, and this is where the nuance comes in uh, for somebody that may be perhaps experiencing anorexia. Uh, hunger and fullness is not gonna be appropriate because those signals are offline, but this real sense of kind of compassion and pleasure and body respect I think is really interesting and there is some really interesting research there and also in binge eating disorder as well that it can be particularly effective. That's fascinating to hear and, and based on the the strong evidence there do you think intuitive eating cat is getting enough recognition in sort of national guidelines and public health advice? I know we had the national food strategy come out um, last week I believe so is intuitive eating getting the mention in these guidelines? A lot of the research on these approaches is coming out of Australia, America, and I just think in the UK we're kind of, we're just not being educated enough about it. Um, and I just wish I'd, I'd found out about this stuff. I know that in like Australian universities, at Monash University, for example, they have Fiona Willer come in and, and educate dietitians. I've started doing lecturing at like Bournemouth. I've done, I've done a bit of work there, but I, I don't think we're quite getting it right. And I'm, I'm not a public health expert, um, I have got my own thoughts on that. And I did have a look at that kind of um, recently published national food strategy. And one of the points that they made just on kind of brief, um, just a brief overview and a search for, what, for stigma, weight stigma, 
there was no comment on addressing weight-based discrimination. And they'd made a comment that said um, they want to make a call to action for everyone who is overweight to take steps to move towards a healthier weight with evidence-based tools and apps with advice on how to lose weight and keep it off. Now, we don't, we don't have that evidence. And, and if weight loss were to be a pill, it wouldn't be allowed to be prescribed because of its lack of effectiveness um, and actually its ability to cause harm for a lot of people. So it, that, that to me is not evidence-based. Um, and I think the, the problem with our cam campaign at the moment is, is the fact that a lot of it's very weight-focused and not health-focused. And those things are two different things. So I think what we need to be doing is addressing weight stigma more and for those sort of anti-stigma messages to be incorporated into these campaigns. And there should really be a focus on health as a primary outcome and motivator for people as opposed to messages that emphasize achieving this ideal weight that for most people might not be ever achievable. Um, and what that does as well is it kind of just perpetuates this idea that in order to be healthier, we need to be thinner. Um, so a lot of the messages are just targeted around around weight, not health, which isn't healthy, which isn't helpful. Um, I think don't address a lot of the, you know, what I commented on, on earlier, which is weight stigma reduction training in healthcare professionals. Um, I'm really looking at larger scale um, sort of policies around like what Issa said earlier around that kind of social change to make actually make healthy habits and behaviours accessible for all people because as per the current stats, I think 10% of the UK population would need to spend more than 75% of their disposable income on food to meet the health healthcare guidance, which which is not it's not okay. Um, so we're kind of we need to look at the weight stigma angle of these these approaches and it just doesn't seem that that's being addressed at the moment. Yeah, no, that's very interesting you say that, because I know some of our listeners are indeed university lecturers or work in public health. So if you had uh, one piece of advice, both of you, that you could give to them, what, what would it be? Isa, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I think it would it would really be to, to really kind of actually do the work in terms of being curious about what we take for granted in terms of talking about weight and health and diet and weight management um, as Kat was talking about really explore some of the Facebook groups and explore some of the literature um, there's some really great papers on why we need a weight inclusive approach to health why these weight centric paradigms are harmful and um, Fiona Willer is another great resource she does a sort of short webinar on, on weight stigma and weight inclusive approaches so really kind of being open to be curious about about the literature and about how we might be able to um, use this literature to, to come together to make some some small changes. Absolutely, thank you. And um, Kat, is there anything that universities could be doing to better educate you know upcoming nutritionists and dietitians on this topic? Yeah, I think um, one thing that's not done enough of is to actually seek the perspectives from people that are living in larger bodies with multiple oppressions to help identify solutions to those and including those people in the in the in the um in the picture really rather than kind of being on the outside looking in um i think that's something that's often miss, missed from what i understand from from reading all of the research and i know how difficult research can be um but i know that rebecca pull 
Rebecca P-U-H-L, has got some um, great ideas in a paper that she published um, a little while back on, um, I think she offers quite a balanced perspective on giving advice on you know, recommendations on what can actually be done because it's very easy to kind of sit and criticise but what we need is actually steps that can be taken. Um, but I think what's clear is the current approaches just aren't working and, and, and being down on the ground and working with individuals on a one-to-one -one basis, the shame and stigma is so pervasive and so detrimental to their health, prevents people going to the doctors, you know, I'm constantly having to advocate for those clients and write to GPs and speak to GPs and, and something's just not right. So I think, um, yeah, um, really working with individuals on the ground. Yeah, something's got to change. Mm. Um, and at the moment, intuitive eating, I think sometimes feels like a buzzword at the moment, especially like celebrities. There's lots of people on social media talking about intuitive eating who are not necessarily as experienced as it sounds like you both are. So um, Isa, why do you think intuitive eating has become a buzzword recently? And can any dietitian or nutritionist call themselves an expert in intuitive eating? Yeah, I think um, intuitive eating has become such a buzzword. And I think in many ways, it's so exciting that we've got more people talking about intuitive eating. Uh, we've got more students talking about intuitive eating. And I certainly get lots of people that reached out to me asking for sort of internships and things like that because they really want to learn more about this space or be in this space. And at the same time, I feel like so much of it has almost been co-opted by the diet industry in a way. And there's, this, there's that confusion again between intuitive eating, this evidence-based self-care framework and, oh, I'm just eating intuitively and, and how they're quite different. Um, so I think it has been, and I think there's real, real harm there because the actual intuitive eating message has become so diluted. And actually a lot of the time it's being used as a diet. It's really interesting that the Noom app, like actually like begs and borrows a couple of intuitive eating principles and repackages them for the purposes of weight loss. And we absolutely know, and, and this is really hard I think as well, um, I just want to be kind of sensitive that it's really kind of impossible to be pursuing intuitive eating and intentional weight loss at the, the same time, because if we're trying to pursue intentional weight loss, then it's going to be very hard to connect to our hunger and fullness signals, to eat for pleasure, to make peace with food, because the underlying thing in our mind is, is weight loss. So I think, yeah, we need to be really mindful and anyone can pretty much call themselves um, an intuitive eating professional. Um, you know, they can have read the book and, and become that. So yeah, I would really look out for what people's qualifications are perhaps. Um, and actually uh, Elise and Evelyn run the sort of course to become a certified intuitive eating counselor. And it's, it's a lengthy course it took about a year kind of to complete from start to finish and there's quite a few components within that including group or one-to-one -one supervision with Evelyn herself just to really iron out the nuances and to make sure that when we're talking about this self-care framework framework approach to eating as intuitive eating that all the professionals out there specializing in this approach are aligned um so yeah it's it's a kind of scary world out there in terms of what these principles are being co-opted for um 
and you can look for that certified intuitive eating counselor sort of stamp really to see who's done what training and that's that's not to say other types of training aren't valid there's lots of other types for example london center of intuitive eating offers training um but yes something to be mindful of yeah we can certainly link to some of the resources that you've mentioned in the show notes of the books and the courses i think that would be really helpful um I was just going to, I just sorry, Kat. I just yeah. wanted to add, because um, I'm just thinking of anyone that's listening that might be a dietitian or nutritionist and, and thinking, oh God, but I'm not a specialist. How do I become a specialist? And I was taught something, which I'm going to put into an acronym right now, because I think it makes sense. And it's called uh, SET, S-E-T. And I think S stands for supervision. So have you got regular supervision in this space from someone that's you know fully qualified and experienced in it? Um, e stands for experience. Have you got experience in this space? You know, have you done any shadowing? Um, I certainly kind of threw myself into it a little bit and kind of learned the hard way, but I had regular supervision and I, you know, I built up that experience, but also importantly, I had the training. So supervision, experience, training, I think equals, you know, you're on the way to becoming more of an expert in that in a space if you've got those three things. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. And I was going to ask Kat, is there any support or recognition from the BDA, the Dietetic Association, with regards to intuitive eating? Um, not as far as I'm aware. I have kind of um, tried to work with them in the past to in, you know, integrate some weight stigma training and it all kind of became quite difficult. I know they've got the kind of obesity obesity group um in there but as far as i'm aware there's no you know there's, there's nothing available for dietitians i think laura thomas and helen west tried to give some education or run some training on it um in that sector but to be honest the the fact that it's called an obesity group just runs through me <laughs> a little bit um and i think what we probably do need in the bda is a you know is a is a non-diet group um and you know i'd love to be able to have the funding and opportunity to help support that but at the moment that doesn't seem to exist so um I'm, as far as I'm aware no well hopefully if anyone's listening and is yeah. um you know equally passionate they can get in touch with you and maybe exactly. you can join forces and get something going exactly so um just one more question before we finish up with our quick fire round so I'm gonna um ask this to you Isa I wanted to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing with schools to try and um transition from that sort of diet mentality that is often um very prevalent particularly in girls schools how are you bringing your intuitive eating knowledge to the schools that you work with at the moment yeah, so as well as my work with clients, I really love partnering with schools. And at the moment, it's just been like a select handful um, that I reached out to or, or reached out to me. And I've been kind of going in and speaking to maybe the sick form um, sometimes in smaller groups, sometimes a little bit younger, but I am really mindful um, of sort of not making a lot of these things like not making young people too aware of some of these um, nutritional things if that's not already on their radar. And we know that. Um, for a lot of people that like biology, healthy eating can be the first sort of trigger that somebody might develop an eating disorder. And we know that that can backfire. So I'm quite mindful of that. But I really love going in and I talk them through the hierarchy of evidence and do a bit of a, a media literacy 
type thing on helping them be critical and mindful of the information that they're picking up on social media, particularly from kind of fitspo or clean eating content. I do a bit of a true, true, true or false um, and I, I get them involved. We do kind of true, you put your hands on your head and tails, you put <laughs> your hands on your tails and, and they sit down and we go through things like, you know, certain foods can detox your body. And I sort of debunk that for them. Um, and yeah, we I go through things like, you know, things that come up, what is sort of diet culture and how it's evolved a little bit. I go through sort of you are not what you eat. And uh, one of the things that I do as well as I get them really involved on in what is food. And, you know, they might yell out like it's important for life or it's energy. And then we also will look at how it's social connection, how it's pleasure, how it's tradition, how it can be um, a form of connecting to nature um, and also sort of uh, give them a, a few things in terms of, you know, if, if you think you're struggling, if anything's coming up to, to reach out to uh, members of staff or, or confide in somebody. So kind of really helping them be aware of, of supporting each other. Um, I don't have any, I give a feedback form, but I don't have any other, other data on whether it's um, particularly effective. Um, the students seem to like it and the staff are now asking me to speak with some of the parents as well. So really thinking, you know, if you tell them that actually, you know, gluten is, is not going to harm you unless you have, you know, celiac disease or um, something like that and explain what it is. And then they go home and maybe mum doesn't eat gluten. So I've been speaking to the parents a little bit more as well on sort of how we can model um, a healthy relationship with food and our bodies and sort of avoiding things like saying, oh, I've been so good or I'm on my diet um, so that the young person isn't so exposed to those messages at home as well. Um, and that seemed to be quite successful as well. So it's just a little kind of side project and I'm kind of partnering with schools on quite an individual type basis where maybe they'll get me back or they'll ask me to do the parents or if a particular year group is struggling with something. So I think they had one year group that um, all of the, the girls in that year were intermittent fasting. So that was something I covered in that particular talk. But, you know, say another school, intermittent fasting wasn't on their radar. I don't want to suddenly be like, oh, here it is and expose them to it. So it's really nice to have that space to do something quite personalized, which, again, I know might not be so applicable to kind of thinking about a public health intervention that could be rolled out to secondary schools. Um, but it's something that I'm I'm kind of enjoying doing and for me, I really wanted to think about what would have been helpful in my own kind of school experience, both personally, but also kind of in terms of my, my year group and just really have something that pushed back against all of the, the toxic messages, which now are so much more present than when I was at school anyway, with, with all the rise of social media. So yeah, it's an exciting little, little project for me. Yeah, great to get those messages embedded early on, I think. And I remember when I was at school, apart from a few food tech classes, we didn't really touch upon your relationship with food. So it's really great to hear. Um, Kat, are you involved in brands or do you do any sort of education with schools? Um, not so much. I did a little bit for a local sailing um, kids initiative down in Weymouth. Um, I've also teamed up with a female sexual wellbeing company called Furley and have done, have done a, um, a programme with them. So it's like an audio audio programme that's just coming out in, in the next couple of months. I've done, I do quite a lot of corporate wellbeing talks. So I talk to large companies, um, mostly over webinar over the last year, um, around um, you know, healthy, healthy relationship with food and cheerful eating, 
So lots of little side projects, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but they probably have a big impact, which is great if you can get that intuitive eating message out there to more people. Yeah. So that, that brings us to the end of our episode. Um, I'm just going to ask you both a couple of quick fire questions. So um, first question is, what do you think is your greatest achievement professionally or personally? Um, Isa, do you want to tackle that one first? Oh, um, I would say um, professionally, um, being able to publish my, my research, uh, which looked at the impact of eating disorders on caregivers. Um, it was, I think that the, the qualitative data was provided from caregivers and I think I had well over 650 participants and it was um, quite a harrowing read in, in many respects hearing about their their experiences and something that I really wanted to do in the paper was really give them a voice and it actually include as as much of the the qualitative data that that was there as possible so I'd say professionally that's something that I'm I'm really proud of um, and yeah just just giving that that voice to that group as well which I hope came through in in the research because there's quite a, a big gap in the impacts of eating disorders on caregivers and families. So yeah, that is that was an exciting one for me. Yeah, brilliant achievement, congratulations. Over to you, Kat, what would you say is your biggest achievement? Um, yeah, there were a few things that came up, but I think one that I learned quite a big lesson from is I was um, about, well, I must've been like 23, and I first got into sort of road biking and, uh, you know, I'd got my first road bike. I think it was my like graduation present from my dad. And I was already doing spinning classes and things. And I, I got into this road bike and I was, I remember going to watch these women racing throughout like town centre races across London or televised. And I was just so inspired and I, and I loved it. And I basically spent the next four years. Um, I had a coach, I was racing and just got very competitive in that world and found myself four years later being on the start line with those people and you know some really kind of famous fast road races um, in those televised town centre circuit races and it just made me realise wow when you put your mind to something and you chip away at it every single day which is what I did you can actually achieve a lot of things and I think it was just a real lesson for me that um, you know, I'm not doing that now. I don't have the capacity for that. But um, with my work, I use that. Like, it really inspires me to kind of do what I do and keep going and keep making sure I've got a vision in front of me. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Obviously, both of you have very entrepreneurial mindsets. So you can see how you really put your mind in a different way to your work and, and built such successful platforms. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So next question is, uh, tell us about another dietitian or nutritionist who inspires you on what can be on social media or off of social media, up to you. Yeah, oh, I would say there are so, so, so many um, out there. Um, somebody that I really, really love on social media, though, is Maeve Hannon, who is a registered dietitian and she specializes in eating disorders and she runs the Instagram dietetically speaking and I think her Instagram content is really really fantastic a lot of debunking sort of food fads and myths and I feel like it's always quite a safe space I can send clients to to have a bit more um I don't know have a bit more of the science and something to push back particularly um against that 
uh, in a food critic or the food police. So she's somebody that I, I really love her work. Yeah, and we've had her on the Dietitian Cafe podcast before. She's wonderful. So definitely worth a follow. And Kat, have you got any suggestions? Yeah, two actually came to mind. One just came up there when it's was speaking. Um, the Mindful Dietitian, which is Fiona Sutherland. She's doing such great work, um, especially for healthcare professionals in this space. And I learned so much from her. So she's a good one to follow. But then in terms of just a bit of lighthearted fun and kind of for you know, clients and things. I find um, she's called the Feel Good Dietitian, Lauren Cadillac. She's based in the US and I think she just does quite funny. I, I, I'm always like, she's someone that I get stuck on scrolling sometimes. <laughs> and I think that's always a good sign. And she's offering, obviously, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not nonsense. It's good quality content around intuitive eating. So oh, I'll have to check her out. No, it sounds great. <laughs> we'll, we'll link to them in the show notes as well so people can go and have a look. And final question, obviously we're in the Dietitian Cafe today. So if you were cast off to a desert island, what would be your last meal, Isa? I completely didn't prep for this um, question, but like if it had to be one thing, it would be tiramisu for me. I love tiramisu, it's just delicious. Um, not really fussy with much else, um, but I definitely have to have the tiramisu for my pudding. <laughs> We'll just give you tiramisu for three courses. And how yeah, about that? Perfect. perfect. It's so light. <laughs> Good for this weather too. And what about you, Kat? What would your uh, chosen I, meal be? Well, I was thinking about this earlier and I've had a really low appetite the last week. So I was like, oh, I just don't want to eat anything right now. Um, but the, I think the thing that came to mind for me initially was Toblerone and then like a homely lasagna with garlic bread and salad and and just something really warm and um comforting although i'm not craving that right now in this heat but um yeah that's a great example of intuitive eating isn't it, it appetite is, yeah. can change yes yeah. and i was like maybe if i i don't know if i were to be presented with that right now no i probably wouldn't want it but i just know it's kind of a home british home comfort that my mum used to serve and and she makes a really good one so wonderful well thank you so much for giving us a bit of insight into your day-to-day -day work lives and this fascinating area of intuitive eating I really hope that it's been valuable to our listeners many of whom perhaps um, work in the NHS and are less familiar with it so um, thank you very much for both of you joining us today and also to our listeners and our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon 